Welcome, Sean O'Sullivan, professor at The Ohio State University. Hi, sorry. Hi, how are you? Welcome, welcome. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for grilling me. Um, Sean, so you have like really kind of interesting story, even just looking at your curriculum vita, right? Mm. Um, Princeton, Bristol, right? Yale, OSU, Boston Globe. But I'm going to let you tell us how you see that journey, that origin story feeding into your interests in narrative and specifically in, you know, what you've become, say, known for your work in seriality and TV and, of course, seriality across different, um, you know, coming in and out of narrative and poetry and so on and so forth. So what's yeah. your story, Sean? <clears throat> what is my story? Um, I'm glad you put Decalogue on there, one of my favorite TV shows ever. Yes, I've, um, this question about narrative theory is interesting. I probably like a lot of people of my generation, um, you know, in college, there were no classes on narrative theory that I knew about. Maybe some places there were. So I sort of found my way to it. I'd always been interested in narrative um, uh, in various forms. And I think that's part of it. It's my interest in different kinds of narrative, you know, context. And that's one of the things that drew me to theory. But um, you know, one way that I think about it, um, you mentioned the Globe, and so I worked um, probably as an intern, then as a kind of regular freelancer for the Boston Globe um, back in the 80s. Um, and one of the things about being a sports writer that is really interesting is, well, a couple of different things. One is when you go cover a game, right? Um, you know, most people who are reading the article know what happened in the game, right? So the question of the game itself being kind of story, right? How that unfolds in ways that is a kind of a shared story, right? Nobody knows what the story is going to be. The game, you know, has different protagonists. But then afterwards, what you're writing about it is interesting because you're choosing parts of that story to emphasize, right? You're choosing how to think about that. And if you're writing, there's different kind of genres of, of, um, story, of sports writing. One is just the game story, right? Where your, your main job is to cover what happens. But even then, there's different ways of doing it. Uh, if you want to get sort of micro, there's things that's called running. I mean, the old days when there were, well, there's actually some ways it's even more that the case now because of the, the sort of no deadline-ness of online. But there used to be several different editions. And so you'd write a story as the game was happening that was basically just the facts, right? And then you'd have a little, a re, re, redo that version for a later edition where you're kind of giving different aspects of that story, right? Um, but aside from just the game story, there's also like a sidebar where you're writing one aspect of it. So just writing... You know, games, you know, sports are inherently narrative or interesting that has a narrative dimension, but the very fact that sports writing makes you ask questions about, um, well, whose story are you focalizing, right? Who's, who's, you know, what character or what events, right? The whole question of which things, um, you know, I'll probably mention this later. One of the things I always talk about with students is that, you know, any story can be told in any different way, many number of ways. And to think about the, a story that you get is a result of a number of choices people have made in telling that. And the narrative is a result of choices, right? And that is just incredibly visible to you or, or just available to you as a sports writer, especially when you have 45 minutes to write something, to think about, okay, what, um, you know, not that it's the right version of the story, but what version of the story am I telling, you know? And who, when am I deciding to tell this and tell that? So that kind of practical experience, because I have a little bit of, tiny little bit of filmmaking experience, no real fiction writing experience, but that sense of that immediacy of, Again, not just telling a story, but telling a story to an audience that I know is interested in that story. Not to say my version of it, right? And so that the way that, you know, sports is the most irrelevant part of the newspaper, but it's one people are interested in probably because I think of sort of an interested narrative and interested in 
in both in what I call it the macro events of a narrative, but also the side issues. And that's one of the pleasures of sports writing as well, to write about something that nobody else has thought about, right? And finding a kind of a side, you know, narrative that hasn't that isn't one of the major ones. So that's that's a bit of non-academic background, but I think it informs my work, not so much that I think about sports writing as such, but I think about um this again, those questions of whose perspective, whose angle, you know, what what the audience is, right? And um so that's one way that I think about it in terms of uh, literature, film, and TV. You know, one of the reasons I'm interested in all those is that, you know, I have a, a, a kind of non-focused brain. I've always been interested in, I changed, my, I changed my major many times in college. I'm interested in, I've been interested in lots of different media and forms. And one of the things that drew me to narrative theory, and this again may come up later, is that, you know, unlike, which is not a critique of other forms, but other, other kind of ways of thinking about that are, that they, that literature or English is divided as with period, right, or, or genre. And those are great, but obviously one of the things that narrative theory can bring is an ability to think across, right, periods and genres, which again can be critiqued as potentially being ahistorical, and there's, there's good and bad to that. But I think that it, at its best, and to me, you know, I feel like I'm, I tend to be uh, Aristotelian rather than Platonic, in a sense I think I use tools of narrative theory as they're relevant to particular contexts rather than having a particular, you know, methodology that I feel like, I mean, I'm sure there's some methods that I use more than others, but I try to think, okay, what's going on here that I can think about? But those tools are ones that, you know, as I say, at, at their most useful are ones that allow you to like, hey, what's something, what's something going on in this movie that's not the same as what's going on in this comic strip or what's going on in this, you know, 19th century novel, but um, as important, I mean, I always tell my students, you know, media specificity is really important. You don't want to sacrifice that. You want to think about, you know, comics and how it's operating in film. So it's not one or the other, but I think the, what narrative theory can do is to allow kind of conversations, right? Or to see, right, what, um, not, again, not that they're equivalents, but there's some way that they're thinking about similar kinds of questions about, you know, I don't know, constituent supplementary events, right? What is the essential narrative parts of the narrative and what are not? You know, what, how do you begin a story, right? And there are certain particular ways that, say, TV shows begin stories or episodes, right? They're different from other ones. But you, by thinking about them together, um, you know, I think in ways that invite. I try not to sort of, like, force things together that I don't think have a conversation. But if you sort of notice things, and I think just because of the nature of my scattered or whatever you want to call it, uh, mine, I sometimes I'm interested in uh, links or echoes or correspondences, um, you know, whether it's across media um, or again, the Decalogue, which you um, is on the screen here. Um, that's a TV show that, um, you know, I, I, to argue that it had any real influence on American TV is probably a stretch. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a series series by Kuzkrat Kuzlowski, a, a Polish filmmaker. Each one, each story is 10 different, is it's a modern story that sort of speaks to one of the Ten Commandments, and they all take place in the same apartment building in 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 in, in Warsaw. And so it's so it's not as if anybody in Hollywood was sitting around watching this in eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety, and was influenced by it. It had more influence probably in, in the film world. But the way it's thinking about um, well, our stories individual, or our stories connected, right? Um, how do we think about? what links, you know, a big narrative object and what separates it. Those are questions that I think we're always thinking about in television. And so one of the interests in the Decalogue is not that of a kind of actual influence, say, on The Sopranos or things like that, but it's, it's sort of flexible thinking about, about how we think about a, a big story world and how characters relate to each other, right? Or how an episode relates to a series, right? It's a really 
rich, you know, and interesting series in that regard. So my interest in connecting it, so that's the same medium, say, as, as 21st century American television, but I'm interested in connecting that to it because I think, oh, what, what, you know, here are different models or different contexts, you know, for thinking about these very basic narrative questions, like, you know, what is a story, you know, or what is a collection of stories, you know, who's, who's telling a story, you know, what, what information is left out? One of the things about Decalogue is often you don't know things, right? So how, how does a, a narrator or a narrative, right, uh, deliberately withhold information, not so much because it's a payoff, because that positions us differently as viewers. So that's covering a lot. I don't know if that has any linearity to great. it at all. Yeah, yeah. No, John, that's really interesting. I have a, you know, a related question, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of obvious to lots of people to, to see how something like Great Expectations and it's um, kind of cliffhanger moment, um, you know, and then the, the kind of hinge and bridge into the next sort of sequence happens as a way of kind of influencing or informing, I don't know, Mad Men or The Sopranos. But can we do a reverse as well? Can we learn about sort of storytelling and how it's being shaped and shaped in t- television and, you know, uh, you know, cable televisions um, and then now platform streaming television to understand maybe devices we might have missed in 19th century big novels that were published in serial form? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that that's, yeah, that's really helpful about it. You know, I should say that actually my dissertation uh, in grad school was not at all, it was all about 19th century novel. You know, I was interested in film before that and afterwards and TV was something I did later. So that was kind of my historical grounding. And one of the things that's important about that era is that um, there's lots of different models of serialization within it, right? I think that's one thing that we can, uh, um, not, not that it's opaque otherwise, but I think thinking about the different models we are aware of now, as you say, whether it's the platform, you know how that matters, you have a whole season drop on Netflix or, or, other, or other platforms or this is the sense of the length of the season, right? Um, some shows, as you say, I'm more interested in the cliffhanger model than not. I just was teaching um, Orange is the New Black, the first season of that, to show that's very interested in a cliffhanger model, whereas you mentioned Mad Men before, very rarely does it do that. So, yeah, if you compare, I mean, even, um, you mentioned Great Expectations, even with Dickens' career, right? That's a weekly um, serial, which is, most of his books were not, were monthlies, uh, and to do with lots of context, and that's another thing, important thing to think about. Seriality always brings up issues of, the marketplace, the practicality of it. Whenever I teach television, I always say, for all the artistic things we're talking about, there's also budgets, right? And there and there are, there are production models. And, and one of the interesting things about TV and film is art forms, so they're always about some negotiation between technology, you know, the three hands, technology in one hand, production practicalities in the other, and then our, our artistic, aesthetic, narrative interests in the other. And a lot of those, I mean, not exactly the same way, but some of those are present in the 19th century as well. You know, that serialization existed before Dickens, but Pickwick Papers, his first big novel, um, sort of created a boom for it. Um, but Pickwick as a novel is very different from later Dickens, right? It's much more episodic, much less, um, you know, about sort of telling multiple stories that converge. Um, or, you know, something like Middlemarch, right, which is a, a, a monthly and much big, bigger chunks, right? So the actual episodes, if you want to call them, at Middlemarch are very different from the episodes of of either, either even a Dickens monthly, like Lake House or Our Mutual Friend. Um, and even when you mentioned the thing about the cliffhanger, I mean, even within Dickens, it's interesting because sometimes you get episodes that have some kind of, you know, you know, shock value, whatever, and sometimes you don't, right? And then the other, another model when I've taught um, 
serial classes involving sort of Victoria writers. Another person I bring into the mix sometimes is Thomas Hardy, who was serialized against his will. I mean, he didn't write the book serially, but he wrote them. And then because of the popularity of the serial market, they were published serially. But sometimes if you read the actual segments in which a, a novel like Tessa Durbervilles was published in, you're like, why is this stopping here, right? So that's an interesting example of where of how the marketplace expectations are so strong, right, that they sort of just cut up, right, the narrative, you know, into those segments, um, whether the text wants it like that, whereas someone like Dickens is the other extreme, where he's someone he's very thinking very much about um, the segment, right? That's the first thing he's thinking about. And as you say, sometimes the segment is, has a certain kind of goal in mind in terms of storytelling, but sometimes it may not necessarily... Um, I mean, I think the biggest cliffhanger in seriality is just the fact that it, it interrupts and comes back, right? Whether, whether there's something in, inherently that brings you back. And obviously plenty of serials, you know, especially like 1930s, you know, movie serials like Flash Gordon, they're very much predicated on that model, right? Um, and that's obviously a huge part of them. But it seems to me um, the very fact of interruption and return, right, is its own kind of, whether you call it cliffhanger, but that says with the space that we're left in is a hugely important part of how people have responded to serials from the very beginning or just how, it how serials are defined um, as a form. And I think just, I mean, I don't want to go too long on this answer, but I think the very fact that people ask questions, right, about the fact now that, you know, these 19th century novels are all, nobody, hardly anybody reads them serially anymore, right? So I think one of the big discussions in the field of seriality studies is, well, are things only serial as they're happening, right? Once they're done, do we think about them differently? And my, my feeling is, yeah, sure, it matters if we read Great Expectations in one evening, right? Um, and sometimes the joins are less visible, depending on what edition you read. You might not know where the breaks were. Um, but it seems to me, part of guys I'm interested in, right, these production conditions, if something is made under certain kind of processes, right, whether they're obviously visible. I mean, I think some of the things you work on in, in comics as well is interesting, right? Sometimes comics are published serially and they're, they're collected at the end, and sometimes they're published as a single thing. And you know, it doesn't mean there's one right way of doing it. That's something that's important to me of reading it, right? But if, if something made under certain kind of interruptive conditions, as you want to call it that, I think those are really, can often be really il illustrative of, of not just how the thing is made, but how we might respond to it, right? And I think that's one of the things I like about working on seriality is that, I mean, I don't have like a big beef about the whole issue of the ahistoricity of narrative theory, but I think working on serials, even if I don't, I'm not like a, I'm not a reception historian. I'm not someone who necessarily foregrounds that explicitly, but I think the fact that you have to always be aware, right, of even just the time span under which something was, was published as some element of its existence in the world, that brings some combination of audience. The changeability, I guess one thing about serials is that people things may change in people's lives as they're writing it, right? So that thing may get incorporated. So the fact that it's a living, breathing object as it's made, I sometimes use the, the analogy of a fresco, right? It's something that's made in a short period of time and that whatever you get, you get, right? Obviously you can go back and, and revise it. So there are these things about the actual making, the things about the actual reception that are, are factors as much as, you know, these sort of more, if you want to call them traditional or bedrock narrative the theory things which are internal, right, to the processes of the, of the narrative object. Sean, let me get, let me um, ask you then on the, yeah. on the um, just to push a little bit on this. Sure idea of shaping the materiality or the reception. Um, yeah. So seriality obviously is, a, is an important shaper of narrative. It's a, in fact, in and of itself, a kind of shaping device, whether it's imposed after the fact or integrated in the creating. But um, what happens when it's 
is only sort of used to satisfy readers and viewers? Or, or can right. we problematize or push right. a little bit on this? Yeah. Well, you should have single dangled some raw meat in front of me because um, satisfaction is one of the things I'm really interested in. It's actually a term that comes up a lot in not just recent seriality studies, but yeah, actually, I have a, if you're interested, you can Google it's an article I wrote called Serials and Satisfaction. It's probably the only article I've written, the most extensive article I've written that actually tackles both TV and 19th century serials together. Um, and just a little context of the article begins partly by quoting reviews of Middlemarch when it came out. And this phrase satisfaction comes up about whether Middlemarch is a satisfying book. And so there's a long history of that term. Obviously the term exists outside of seriality, but I'm interested in it because satisfaction literally means enough of something, right? Status is enough, right? And whether you can have uh, enough and then you feel like you're full, right? As part of the analogy is a kind of a food analogy. And my argument is that, you know, cereals are not, are create, there's always too much, right? There's too much either appetizing like fan fiction, right? And also the longer a cereal goes, the more materials, the more things it creates as part of its pleasure, right? At the different directions it goes. And of course it can tie things up, but tying things up, to some degree, narratively, it doesn't necessarily tie up all the different directions or interests that, it, that it's raised. And so I'm interested in it because it is a kind of default term. That, you know, it comes up over and over again. You mentioned, um, you know, when, when they announced that the, the final two seasons of Breaking Bad were going to happen and Vince Gilligan, the creator, says we can satisfy our viewers. And so I'm not saying that Vince Gilligan is wrong to try to do this, but I think what's interesting about it is that it does create a potential dichotomy between satisfying or not, as if there's something that's contained. And part of my... Uh, interesting seriality is that it's, I mean, this is not, a, I mentioned I was Aristotelian before, and I'm going to critique Aristotle, not so much a critique of him, but the way that Aristotle is a sort of foundation for the poetics, foundation for narrative theory, there is a kind of implication of containment there, right? It's, he's writing really about tragedy, which is something that happens in front of you, right? And also these kind of unities, not all originally Aristotelian, but one day, you know, these kind of things. There's something about the contained thing, and whether that's um, the play or, you know, one of the kind of central um, objects, if you want to call it that, of, of narrative study has always been the short story or the folktale, right? Something that's sort of contained that you can you put, you put your, wrap your head around or maybe the, 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 um, the Jane Austen novel, Jane Austen, someone's written, written a lot about, again, three volumes, but still not serialized. And those are all great, right? But something about seriality, both it's spread, but also, again, the gap is so important to me. You know, you, the question is, what is seriality? One way I've defined it, you know, this is not like original, but... There's the new, the old, and the gap, right? You get a new installment, right? And then that becomes old, right? And part of the way we negotiate each installment is, okay, this is something new, but how do I fit into what's happened before? But the gap is crucial. And I think that gap creates both, you know, an opportunity, a desire for satisfaction, but that next installment may satisfy some things, right? And this is a classic technique of storytelling, where you satisfy some things and then you create new appetites, right? So that's, a, that's on the level of what happens in the story world, and that's important too. But it's also on the level of... Um, the more you produce, right, the more you can't satisfy. And that's, and that's nothing wrong with that. That's part of me that's interesting about serials is that whether it's characters who get, don't get their full treatment or just the fact that, you know, there's, there's another way of thinking about seriality is what's sometimes called open and closed serials. So open serials are just closed serials that could like soap opera or comic strips, right, that, or, or certain kind of radio dramas that they have no, no ending. They just sort of they can go on forever, right, until they have to stop. Uh, as opposed to closed serials that advertise some kind of shape, whether it's, again, a Victorian novel or a TV, you know, season. Um, but Victoria, serials are always sort of negotiating between those two, right? In the sense that all, even all serials, even as they're, if they're closed, there's a kind of openness, you know, you enter into it and you, it could go on for a while, right? But it sort of stops because of, you know, that's 
that the narrative shape, right, that, that the writers want or the TV series wants. But part of the, this, the, the pleasure of entering a serial world is the sense of, of this could go on, right, whether that's designed or not. You know, and likewise, even, even though soap operas or comic strips may not have, you know, destination points, um, you know, arguably each episode is an ending, right? I mean, one of the things I, I argue is that, you know, ending is in some ways long ways off, but it's always there, whether it's a commercial break or an episode break, right? So this sense of, of where, what, what do we mean by an ending? What do we mean by destination point? And these are not questions that are, these are questions that are incredibly interesting and vital in seriality. And they're also answered differently by every serial. I think it's one of the interesting challenges of writing about serials. As, as you mentioned, I am interested in thinking about serial, serial, seriality across text. I'm also constantly wondering about that, right? I mean, does it, I mean, I, I think it's a healthy skepticism to say like, well, just because, you know, again, a telenovela, you know, um, you know, um, a 19th century novel, whatever it is, you know, a podcast are serialized, right? Because they appear in installments. You know, how much can we be confident about connecting them? And I think it's, I'm not saying we shouldn't, right? But I think the question of both what's individual about individual pot serials, what's individual about different media um, is really important to keep in mind. But then, you know, allowing for that to think about what are these basic questions about the gap, these questions about, you know, open and close, these questions about audience, right? Some of these things, it can be exciting to think about these together because sometimes you get um, these things can shed light on each other in a way that if you're only thinking about one era or one medium, you know, you don't necessarily see. What, um, so, you know, we've, we've talked about 19th century, late 19th century. We've talked to uh, literature, alphabetic, seriality, and the different conditions and the different ways that creators were working within these constraints. Um, why poetry? Right. So I think one of the interesting things for me is that um, some of the things we think of as, as we critique or see as failures in television in particular are the bedrock of poetry, right? which we could think of sort of formula. If you want to think about that, right? And this goes back to, you know, one of the things I've actually written about a little bit about is, you know, the, the Odyssey and whatever, you know, the way that poetry there in an epic sense, and there's a obviously interesting connection between epic and narrative and, and seriality in terms of scope. But you know, the way that I was actually, before I was anything else in college, I was a classics major, so I did a fair amount of translating of Latin and Greek poetry. And, you know, the way that um, a line of Greek, uh, I make a dactylic hexameter works is that each line has a certain, um, uh, certain boundaries at which you can, which you can operate, but there's also flexibility within those boundaries, right? And you also have things like, in, again, in, in Homer, things like rosy-fingered dawn or these sort of epithets, which are there, you know, we think partly to help fill in the line of poetry for, for, for the poet, the epic poet, right? They have these sort of, these, these sort of things you stick in. And there are other things about epic that is relevant as well about seriality, because there's no way the, the Odyssey could have been performed in one night, so it would have been a serial experience. So that's, that's a broader context, but the sense of formula, right? Formula is how poetry operates. And again, there's, there's, there's free verse, but for the history of, you know, most poetry, there's some sense of either what a line of poetry looks like or what a sort of poem looks like, right? And that sense of what poetry is often, right, is some interplay between the demands of a particular poetic form or just the sense of the rhythm of, of how speech works and how that, you know, the rhythm of meter, rhythm is how words sound and meter is this kind of really sometimes arbitrary, you know, thing that you imposed on it. I think it's another thing that I inherit from the TV, from the sports, right? Sports is full of all these arbitrary rules about like how long a field is or how many innings there are. And these are kind of, you know, restrictions that could be anything else. Once you have these restrictions and there's a sort of literally a play within those, right, in sports, and I think similarly in poetry. And it just occurred to me that, 
you know, formula and, you know, repetition, you know, and, and um, convention, right? These are things that can seem pejorative in a televisual context, right? But they're, they're the kind of lifeblood in a very different way of poetry. And it just struck me was interesting to me about some of the shows that I started writing about. I mean, the first shows I started writing about about 15 years ago were Deadwood. And um, it's not incidentally made by someone who was a David Milch, a literature scholar who was very much interested in thinking about, um, I mean, partly within the story world context, but also thinking about the rhythms of, of, of you know, literature, or the rhythms of that, which are partly about, right, the sense of, of rules and then playing within that. But Deadwood and Sopranos and other shows like that, that are sort of, not abandoning, right, what we want to think of as the formulas of television in terms of, you know, there are certain conventions about a TV episode, at least American television. There's like three storylines, right? There's a certain length of what's called a beat, right? A beat is lasts a minute to two minutes, depending you things called like called the cold open, which is just the beginning thing before the credits some shows have. So they're only sort of, if you want to call them just poetic or, or you know, prosodic markers that are just like devices that are used, right? Um, and what was interesting, some of these shows is that they were like to me some interesting like what to the poetry that always i find most interesting is the poetry that you know reveals its you know shape or reveals the, the rules whether it's a sonnet or something else that that you that you recognize but then the pleasure for or the interest in reading it is how is this what is the what is the conversation right between um what the the, the confinement right and then the play within that and you know a lot of these shows that i started writing about were the episodes were not five hours long, right? They're an hour long. They have multiple, you know, there are a lot of things about them are recognizable in the televisual context, but they're doing different things with that in terms of story, in terms of, you know, perspective. And so my analogy had to do with the sense of thinking about, again, things that narrative theory is interested in as well, or just narratives interested as well. Like what are the building blocks? If you go back to, you know, prop and so forth, right? What are the kind of recurring things that, that we get? And, you know, the lifeblood of poetry has always been that. I mean, most, most of its history. Um, and to, and the, again, I think the poet I, I talk about that I, I find kind of as a model for this, I mean, model's the wrong word, is someone like Frost. So Dickinson would also be a parallel. So, I mean, if you read a Dickinson poem, people know that she's using this sort of ballad stanza, right? So it's very recognizable. She's adopting, right, a very sort of often, not always, but just sort of fixed form. And then she's doing her own stuff with it. If you read Dickinson, she's really going off. But it's recognizable within that shape. Frost, you know, who works on the sonnet, but he does, he'll have a sonnet that has no rhyme, he'll have a sonnet that has an extra line, he'll have a sonnet that has couplets. These are all rule breaking, right? But they're also sonnets at the same time. And I think that sense of the visibility and resistance to um, structures, right, as part of where the, the, uh, the interest in the art object comes from, um, I saw a lot of this happening, both on the episode level and on the season level. And that was part of my interest in the season is that it's been around for many years in lots of different ways in American television, but because of production schedules and because of people don't, people couldn't watch them independently until you know, the 21st century, you couldn't really get a whole season. We don't really become aware of it um, as a kind of potential independent form. And so until the 21st century, somebody just, I was became interested in how the season becomes this shape, right? Especially the 13 episode season, which is not longer the dominant one, but became one for like the last, for you know, 2000, 2010 anyway. And sometimes arbitrarily, there's like a lot of things. Like, why 13 episodes? You know, there, there are some reasons behind that, but at a certain point, it just became the, the, you know, the art form of the moment, right? And people thought, well, let's work within that, right? And, and, and see what we can do with it. Um, and what was interesting to me is that all these shows are, are you know, bound by 13 episodes, 
but they're so different from each other. I mean, Deadwood and Breaking Bad and The Wire, I mean, Six Feet Under, these are radically different shows in many ways, not just in terms of story world, but in terms of how they're using the, their experiments with narrative. But they're also experiments that you can also line up because they are, you know, choosing certain kinds of restrictions, right? The 13 episodes or whatever, as, you know, challenges, if you want to call them that, right? Or, you know, you think about, you know, comics, again, the frame, right? These things that exist. And then a comic can work with the frame or not work with the frame, or you can have a splash page, whatever, the same things that we see in comics, which I don't know, know nearly as well as you do, but some of that same question of there are these rules. And then part of the interest for us, but also the interest for creators is in that interplay between, you know, the rules and then the, the, the freedom, you know. It's interesting that someone like Mike Lee, who is well mm-hmm. known for not pre ordaining or constraining through like a written script became the focus of a book length study, which of course requires a lot of time investment and passion and even involvement in this case with the director. So why Mike Lee for you? Yeah, I think to be honest, it's partly, I'd say it's a separate part of my brain rather than the serial part, but I think there's a, there's a couple of, I mean, it's related in a way, but there are two, two answers to that question. One answer is on a practical level, um, there's another British filmmaker named Peter Greenaway. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but actually when I was at Bristol, I did a thesis on him. And he's about as different from my colleagues you can imagine as a filmmaker. And I had the opportunity to write a book for the series from the Illinois, um, University of Illinois Press on contemporary film directors. I said, well, I could either do a book on Mike Lee, who I'm interested in, that I hadn't read about, or Peter Greenaway. They basically said, well, they prefer Mike Lee for whatever reason. So partly it was is an accident of public, but I've always been interested in him. I taught him, I hadn't written about him. And what interests me about his work, and it's a bit, I mean, it's, it has some analogies, I guess, not so much to the serial form, but to this issue of this tension between, if you want to call it that, um, you know, uh, something raw and something cooked. I mean, I don't know, there are different ways of thinking about it. But, you know, his works are roughly put into the category of realism. This is something I've always been interested in. I mean, in some ways in cinema, I'm interested in two extremes, sort of realist filmmaking, which is a set of codes and practices having to do with camera work and also what kind of story you're telling and, and certain kinds of um, aesthetic practices. Um, and then I'm also interested, on the other hand, on really formally self-conscious work, right? These are often thought of as really different from each other for good reasons, right? And my, my, my interest in Lee was not so much that he was secretly, you know, um, you know David Lynch or, or Wes Anderson or somebody whose formal preoccupations are, in, are immediately visible, but that there were, that he had, had everything had been talked about him as if he were just sort of turning the camera on like a security camera, things were happening in front of him, right? And as you said, there's something unique about his process, which is that he typically doesn't begin with any story at all. He has something back of his mind. He gets actors together and they maybe or rehearsal or, 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 or just a, this, um, uh, this sort of long period where they're sort of finding their characters, right? So that's a fascinating aspect of his work. And I think that, that fascination of that aspect, which seems to be organic, all these sort of terms that get used about it, is incredibly rich, but it's that, that sort of, that sort of backstory, if you want to call it, that had sort of overwhelmed the writing about him to the degree that as if nobody thought about that he had a camera, that he knew how to use a camera, right? Or that he was thinking about style. He was thinking about narrative structure, right? And so my interest was in thinking about, yes, I wasn't trying to turn him into, um, you know, uh, someone who's a pure, pure formalist, but there were these kind of ways he was of seeing and ways of thinking and ways of storytelling that were recurrent across his films, at least a, a number of cases, that were about questions of style and questions of you know form, things that are that and the interplay again. If the interplay in some of these in some of these sort of frost sonnets between 
you know, the voice of the, the voice of the, as it is, the perspective as it is, the individual story, and then the rules, right, of, of the sonnet. With him, again, it wasn't exactly the analogy, but it was similar in that, hey, he does have these visual interests, and he does have these sort of storytelling narrative claims. There's a kind of, you know, kind of, there's a kind of practicing theory of storytelling that's going on in these films if you start thinking about them not simply as sort of undigested events and start thinking about them. And he does, I mean, he, you know, says himself, look, everything that you see, I've thought about very carefully and put together. As much as the, the, the story and the dialogue, all this is coming from a shared partnership with, with um, the, the actors. And he says there's never any improvisation or hardly any on camera. By the time you get to the camera, the shooting, he knows what he wants. The actors know what they want as well. But there's a sense of it being shaped and formed. And part of that, again, comes from this sort of discovery process. But part of it does come from certain set of interests, you know, visual interests, narrative, um, you know, preoccupations, um, uh, uh, recurrent. Um, I've talked a lot about he uses these recurring shots of these sort of two people in the same image. You know, they're both looking at the camera. And there's often something about it may just seem like two, two people talking. And that is often the case. But it's also a way they're sort of articulating just through their presence and through the way they're framed, two very different ways of thinking, two very different ways of imagining the world. And so I was really fascinated to me to, in, to think about the interplay of, of what is formal and what is realist, if you want to call it that. And I think, I think all realist filmmaking opens that up, but I think his films in particular are rich in that regard. And as you say, I had the opportunity to talk to him many times, and I think he... He's a great interlocutor because he doesn't stand for bullshit. <laughs> you know, if he thinks a question is stupid, he'll say that. Um, but I think he did appreciate, I mean, um, he said this to me, that someone was thinking about his work in a way people hadn't done before. And it wasn't his job to articulate that. But I think the fact that he um, cares a lot about, you know, camera lenses, right? And thinks a lot about, you know, the, the kind of these kind of things that, of course, all filmmakers think about, but that often gets erased when we think about, you know, these films as being slices of life, which of course they are, right? But they're not they are works of art at the same time, yeah. right? Yeah, and how that, yeah. Thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, sure. no, absolutely. Um, my, you know, huge hat off to him and to you for doing the work. Um, so, I mean, in a way, I'm, we're, I'm kind of been hearing this all along, but what is the alpha to omega for you? Huh. Like, what, where do you want, like, what do you want to be in a way remembered for doing as a scholar? The Sean O'Sullivan's like, you know, gift to the world. Wow, that's a little, that's a little daunting. Um, I mean, I, I think part of my, this whole, I think part of the reason I'm interested in serial is I think of myself, um, well, it's not quite what many, many Farber famous film critic talked about termites and elephants, right? In terms of different kinds of art. And I think I, I see myself more as a termite in the sense of like, I'm interested in lots of different things and sort of working at them. I'm not sure if I have a big, uh, I mean, obviously the things I'm interested in, right? Seriality, I'm interested in, in, in things about, uh, form, you know, and, and aesthetics, and those are things that I've always been interested in. But those are practices, right, or approaches rather than a, a theory or a school. And I think that's just the way my mind works. I don't necessarily think, not that I'm not theoretical, but I think I get to the theory through the thing, right? And that's sort of my interest in it rather than necessarily the other way around. And that's, you know, just the way different... Um, I guess if I had, I mean, I don't want to kind of legacy. I mean, I can sort of talk about this, this. I mean, one way to answer this question is this book I'm working on, which is thinking about the season as the sort of narrative unit. And you know, especially the, you know, first 15 years in particular of this, of this uh, millennium. And I think the legacy of that is that it's both thinking um, about, about thinking little and large at the same time, right? And thinking about how, how do specific choices matter 
um, but how the specific choices represent echoes. I think, I mean, fra the fractals are kind of metaphor. I like, and they're both individual choices, but they're also choices that speak to choices on, on an episode level and on a kind of season level. How do these different um, shapes, right, or forms, right, um, matter to us? And I think that's one thing that in my, I don't think I'm going to call it a legacy, but I, I like to bring up in my teaching that I think when it's my teaching works, that is helpful for students who sometimes just, you know, get into the guts of something, which is great. And they haven't necessarily thought about, right, how to put together, right? And I don't want them to think not about how, what it is, but just to always just ask questions about how does this form matter, right? How does it matter that even if it's a, you know, a film, is it's, you know, widescreen or not, right? I mean, none of these one things by themselves denote anything, but to always think about the shape of the, the shape of something, whether it's literally the shape of something. Um, and I guess to think about, to be willing to be, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess the term I think again, to be willing to be diffuse, which doesn't sound very useful uh, in your thinking that is to be able to connect things that might always seem uncontactable. I think that's gonna be a, a kind of, again, it's not something that I set out to do, but it's the way I think. And I think the work that I often find interesting, um, even if it's really different from my own, is work that makes me think about things that haven't been juxtaposed, right, necessarily together. Um, so I guess it's more about how you think about things rather than any kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like always a star size, like Jameson or something like that. It's not something I can necessarily, um, or, you know, other, other, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Or, or other kinds of, of, um, uh, ways of thinking that become, you know, systematic programmatic. I, I think of myself as someone who is, who is asking always curious and asking questions about, um, um, you know, what the the textual and just you know and just the the, the the sensual physical quality of an object how does it work I and mean, again i have a bit of an art history background as well um how does that matter to how we respond to it so that's not really an answer to your question at yeah, all that's it's just, great actually i think it leads yeah. me right into your classroom okay. so sean how right. how do you get um or what's the like the elevator kind of pitch version of a Sean O'Sullivan way method to get students to think about that kind of textuality or form and how it matters. Yeah. I think someone someone takes takes the stairs rather than elevators. I'm not sure I have an elevator pitch, um, uh, but I should have one. That's part of my, th I mean, I think one answer to that question is I, tr I, um, with, um, what's one way I thought about it? Sort of, first of all, it depends on the class, right? But I think it was more as, sort of things to drop in. I mean, I feel like obviously there's a certain context like a narrative theory class, but I still feel as if the best way is to say, well, here's one tool or one language, one, one way of thinking, right? You know, whether it's again, um, a gap, right? Which is an interesting term because of course that's, I mean, one thing I talk about when I teach narrative theory is that the word gap, right? Does actually appear in narrative theory, but it's thinking more about gap filling within the text, right? One of the things I, I sort of try to talk about when I teach I thought with seriality is like, well, you know, a lot of narrative theory texts talk about, say, Dickens and Eliot, right? But they traditionally, they don't talk about them as serial objects, right? Um, but they think about gaps, but not necessarily gaps in production. And so it's sort of thinking about, okay, what ways of, you know, what things does this text seem to ask us to, to look at, right? Pay attention to. And so I will introduce terms, not necessarily because I want them to, I mean, depends on the class, because I want them to have a comprehensive knowledge of all the vocabulary of narrative theory. I think we often get to that, Right. But it's more like, um, I don't know if there's an example or not, but for, I mean, one book I've taught a couple of times recently is Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies, right? Which is a short story collection 
part of the reason I teach you there's certain parallels to the short story collection as a kind of form, right? Especially the kind of thematic, you know, but short story collection with different characters and different, you know, take place at different places or some places in common. But instead of talking about questions of, you know, of folk, you know, here's a story that's focalized through person X, right? And story, and by having a kind of juxt a collection of things, right? You can ask those kind of questions, or you can ask questions about, um, uh, or just what kind of narrative shape something has. We talk about the story. We talk about the collection, right? How how would we? And I ask one of the exercises I give them is like, what if we rearrange the stories in the collection? How would that matter to how we think about it? Um, so trying to take again, maybe going back to sort of taking the object and sort of turning it inside out, right, and asking questions of how, it, how it's working. And so using terms, again, like gap filling or, or focalization, or I'm trying to think of other ones possibly that are, that are relevant. Um, um, obviously narration, right? I mean, heter uh, you know, um, um, homogenetic narrator or whatever, right? So asking things that, because it seems to me what's narr useful narrative theory is that it's, it's drawn, it's, it exists because narratives existed, right? And people wanted to find ways to talking about them, right? And so to think about, um, to, each time you go to a new book or film or whatever is to be aware of what you've talked about before, but to be as open as possible to what the film is giving you, right? Or what the, what the, what the text is giving you and what it's not giving you, right? And, and it's maybe that negative space is just as important as that positive space, like, well, what's left out, right? And those are things that have to do with, again, gaps or... or, or uh, it's a term that Porter Abbott uses. It's a slightly weird term in his book. It's called narrative jamming, he calls it. I'm not sure anybody else has picked up on that. It sounds like music, but it's about sort of where you're given one thing, but you're sort of, you're frustrated in some way, right? Either that through information or through why it's told a certain way. Um, so, you know, bringing terms in as I feel are um, not like the right term to use, but are, are terms that the text asks for. And it seems, I mean, it's something I've always thought about and something you said that the most interesting, often the most interesting works of narrative theory are actual novels themselves or movies themselves. It doesn't mean narrative theory as defined isn't incredibly important, but how does this novel think about what it's telling or what, is it cho what choices is it's making? And I think to use the novel or the movie or the TV show itself as a work of narrative theory, right? In conversation with narrative theory proper in that it's, again, that's what interests me about a lot of these TV shows is that they really do seem to be thinking about what television can be, right? What television storytelling can be, right? In a, in a medial context, but also in a broader context, right? In a sense of why do we tell stories, right? For whom is the story told, right? Um, what happens if we tell a story and The Sopranos famously has an episode where these characters appear in Pine Barrens and they never come back again. You know, what, what do we expect? What are the rules, right? Or, or the, what is the transaction between a creator and, and an audience, right? And, we can ask these questions through the language of narrative theory, and that's great. Um, but I also try to see what kinds of questions the the artwork is asking of us too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, uh, we've taught, we co-taught together. So um, yes, we have. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. But so yeah, what's what's next for you? You started to get a little bit into this with your yeah. new book, but let's hear yeah. about your new book and what you're doing, Sean. Well, I can mention the book, and I also can mention the, the totally goofy project. Um, you know, there's the kind of thing where you're much, I'm much more interested in the book after the book I'm working on. We all get tired of the book we're working on at a certain point. So this book project, right, is, is, is thinking about really trying to foreground the season as, as a form, which people talk about a lot, um, but there hasn't really been a book that's, that sort of takes the season, the new season, as its sort of central focus, right? And sort of starting with Sopranos, sort of perhaps obviously, but that is the kind of whether what everyone feels about that show, it was, became a model for other shows to follow and thinking about that, the season and what the, you know, one reason I use the sonnet analogy, and that's the name of the book, The Sonnet Season on American Television, is that just as in a sonnet, as in other art poetic forms, there are sort of 
different parts of the sauna do different, different kinds of things, right? And what I'm interested in thinking about is there are certain challenges to the beginning of a, of a show or beginning of a season, right? Um, but then one of my arguments is that fifth episodes are often really crucial turning points, just as often that's a crucial turning point in a, in a, in a poem. Not because people had in mind, like, let's do four crappy episodes and a good one. Uh, but if you're trying things out with a TV show that are different, you often may not find your language for a while, right? So I'm interested in that kind of thing. I'm interested in sort of middles of seasons, which become these places where there's a kind of perhaps lateral freedom. Um, Jennifer Egan, who wrote A Visit from the Goon Squad, talked about how, which is, again, another sort of collection of short stories slash novels. She talks about how, perhaps surprisingly, The Sopranos was influential to her, not because of anything in the story world, but because that sense of you can be lateral, but also forward at different times, right? So I'm interested in how, in the context of a closed 13-episode thing, the ways in which people were sort of found ways of thinking about character, about space, about momentum, but also de-momentum, if you want to call it that, um, in different ways while still telling stories about people. Right? These are not purely experimental ob objects, right? So that's, the, that's the, the shape of the book, and it's using a bunch of different series, um, you know, Clean the Sopranos, Wire, Deadwood, but also a little more, some more recent ones, including Fargo, Americans and Orange is New Black, and Transparent. So there's a kind of, if you want to call them legacy series, right, of, of the teens as opposed to the zeros and how they're, rethinking this so i'm interested in, in a kind of both historical scope but also thinking about where have we gotten to right over the last 15 years in terms of what tv can be and tv you know some people in media studies resist this but certainly i think a lot of creators would say the tv is in a different place now from what it was 15 years ago in terms of what it can be and what the options are and i'm sort of sort of working through how that became the case on a kind of you know cl close looking storytelling level um the other, I'll just mention this other crazy book, which I've been thinking about for a very long time, just called The Portrait and the Plot. And it's about uh, a painter, a novelist, and a filmmaker. It's about um, Jacques-Louis David, the 18th century painter, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, oh, sorry, I skipped, uh, Charles Dickens and Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and it's called The Portrait and the Plot. It's about these sort of moments in their careers where they're thinking about character and plot and in, in, in really sort of, think, sort of theorizing those. And the reason I'm interested in David he was a neoclassical painter who painted both before, during, and after the French Revolution. Um, but he's one of the first painters, uh, well, I should say this, but portrait painting and history painting have always been very different art forms in, 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 in the history of painting. Right? So either you were known as one, right? You did portraits or you did like big scale biblical epics or whatever, right? And some people did both. But the part of the French Revolution did is it, it sort of changed our whole sense of what we mean by right, character and plot, right? And so he he's someone who does both. And what's interesting about his painting is that he sort of makes us rethink about how, if you want to call it that, right, vast narrative and, and the psychological uh, interplay. His most famous, one of his most famous paintings is a painting called The Death of Marat, which people may know, but it's a painting that's about a revolution, I mean, figure of a revolution after his death. And it's simultaneously a portrait and a history painting. Maybe the first painting in the history that was both at the same time. And so I'm interested in how that works in painting, right? And then there's a sort of sequence of novels of Dickens, and then with Hitchcock, I'm interested in these four films he makes, uh, sort of late in his career, and how he uses the hotel as this, just a recurring thing in Hitchcock's career, as this place where it's both a place of psychology and a, and a place of narrative. So I'm interested in thinking, there's no books about painting novels and films because people aren't stupid, um, but I'm just sort of interested in thinking, how do these questions in very different contexts, right? There's historical context as well. How do these sort of really basic questions of are you reading for character or reading for plot? Obviously, we're often reading for both, right? But these are these are writers or, or artists who are kind of wrestling with that within their own medium and within a certain context and open up interesting questions independently of each other. So it's a kind of a three 
you know, sequence book, but it's also a book that tries to say, not that painting and cinema and the novel are the same, but what happens when we ask these questions about, because what's interesting about paintings is that there were all these rules about, you know, what a painting should be, right? It's a landscape or it's a genre painting. There were these 18th century codified rules about, and we think of narratives not having that, right? And I'm interested in how that sense of what we're getting is foregrounded and then gets played with, right, into these cases. So, I've been thinking of this book for a long time. Um, I, I hope I'll eventually get to write it. I've taught these three people together. But I, again, it, I think it speaks to my, my kind of both either completely non-contained, non, um, uh, non-organized way of thinking, but also my desire to, to bring different media and different eras together through narratives. The title of that book, or tentative title anyway, maybe, uh, sounds very much like a Peter Greenaway film. Um, Portrait in the Plot. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, <laughs> I just hope there's no like, um, cannibalism, or maybe there will be. Who knows? Um, but um, Sean, like, you've taken us from Homer through Dickens, George Eliot, Mike Lee, The Sopranos, Deadwood, um, really like helping me and um, the viewers see how important form is, how form can lead to spaces of dissatisfaction or right narrative jamming um, and why it finally matters. So thank you, Sean. My pleasure. <laughs>